Hello everybody, I'm Gary Smith. I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, and my guest co-host today, Brutus, who's going to sit there and hopefully not interrupt this intro. Anyway, I had the pleasure this past week of a almost two-hour interview with Dr. Brian Adenoff. Dr. Adenoff, who now resides in Colorado and spends a lot of his free time advocating for drug reform, spent a greater than 30-year career inside addiction psychiatry, heading up departments and also working for the VA in much of that time. I had a fascinating interview with him, and we were originally scheduled to talk for only an hour, but we were both so into it, the time just shot past, and, and by the time I looked up, we were an hour 45 minutes in, and I had another appointment to go to, so I had to end it. But I'll absolutely be having Dr. Adenoff back for round two of a, a fascinating conversation. So I do hope you enjoy it. Thanks. It is great to be here, Gary. I've uh, uh, really enjoyed your podcast, and I'm glad we were able to connect and meet up like this. So um, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, and uh, I've been in the field since, uh, well, since they first started addiction psychiatry um, is, a, uh, is a fellowship. Uh, so it kind of dates me. My, my career has primarily been in research, trying to understand the neurobiology of um, uh, addiction, what, 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 the, what addiction do to the brain and how that perpetuates continued use. Um, done a lot of teaching. Um, I've been uh, head of some programs uh, for addiction treatment. And I retired, I've been in uh, academia um, at the um, Medical University of uh, South Carolina in Charleston for several years. And then most of my career was at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. Um, and I've also been in the VA full time uh, during that whole time. Um, a couple years ago, I uh, retired from full time academia and uh, moved to Denver to be with my family. My brother and sister and daughter here. Uh, and it was a long time planning this move. Uh, and since then, I've uh, gone more into the areas that I feel most passionate about, which is uh, drug policy reform and social justice. And, and that is right at the heart of our show. Um, for the viewers who've been tuning in on, on these various episodes, as they know, Psychedelic Alex 
is the exploration of the law of psychedelics in particular, although I know your expertise goes far beyond that particular class or category of drug. Um, but it, it is at least the running thesis of the show that psychedelics have been misunderstood, maligned, and never given a fair chance to be evaluated in, in the context of, of public health and also in the context of something other than a purely criminal model. And we love to look at every possible angle, so I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the show because you've got this deep bench of experience directly in the heart of what has been, uh, for the last 50 years, the war on drugs, and you've been in deep, 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 deep territory the last 30 of it. So I'm, I'm grateful that you're on the show sharing that experience with us. So with that being said, um, can you talk a little bit about the particular types of addiction issues that your career has addressed? Well, I, um, my career is focused on alcohol and cocaine uh, primarily. And towards the end, I did some very interesting work uh, with neuroimaging looking at tanning addiction, sunbed addiction, uh, which is a little off from everything else, but uh, no one else had done it. So it was, it was kind of cool. Uh, so so I, I started out looking at stress response systems, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis uh, that is one of the primary uh, physiologic responses to stress and how that changed in people who had been drinking a lot. Uh, and as neuroimaging came into its own, uh, I started doing uh, first spec scans, um, which use radioisotopes to look at brain function. And then over the last several years, uh, functional MRI or fMRI that is able to look at brain changes uh, second to second, which has been pretty cool. Uh, when, when I started my, when I was in med school, there was a hospital uh, I was doing rotations in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and there was a hospital that I heard about got a CAT scan, which uh, was a really big deal. It, so the, the world has changed so much in medicine uh, since that time. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I can absolutely relate. Um, a year ago, we had to take my father to the hospital for a cardiac episode, and they had some little handheld sonic device of some sort. I didn't get the name of it, and I'm sorry I didn't. But they were able to ultrasound his chest using this, and on the screen, live, real-time, is a full-color 3D image of his heart. Um, and I'm just staring at this thinking, my God, all those episodes of Star Trek I watched growing up, I'm living it right now. So, yeah. so yeah. I, I'm not even inside the medical profession like you are, and I'm amazed, so I can't even fathom yeah. how you must feel about it. Um, it was um, it, it was very cool, and it was very cool to have the opportunity to be able to uh, have our participants do various tasks. We had one task where we would um, uh, they had a, a thermoid around the wrist that could get very hot very quickly, and so they could look at a uh, a screen while they're in the fMRI scanner and they would see a, a square and they would know within a few seconds that it could get intensely hot. Um, or if they saw a triangle, they know it would get warm. And in doing that, we could see while they're waiting for this extremely painful, well, not extremely painful, but they didn't scream, but it, it hurt. 
uh, when I did it, uh, it would hurt. And so we could look at brain changes over those few seconds while they were waiting for this intense stress to happen. Hmm. This is fascinating. So how long would you say the ability to look inside a human brain as a tool of psychiatry, how long has that been available and, and utilized? Because this, this sounds to me like just such fascinating territory that's barely, barely been explored. Am I right in that assumption? Um, no, there's, there's been a lot of uh, research over the last 30 years. I'd, I'd say you know, that our, our techniques as in all of medicine had gotten much, much better over time. But we've had, we've had uh, yeah, it probably goes back 30 years that we've had PET inspect imaging of brains and then over the last 20 fMRI. Um, now, the, the thing is, back when I started, uh, it, it was predicted that within 10 years, we would be able to look at a brain and tell you that, yes, this person has alcohol addiction or cocaine addiction or schizophrenia or depression or bipolar disease. Um, and and we would then be able to prescribe medication or therapies based on what we found in the brain. Uh, 20 years ago, that, that hadn't happened. The 10 years had passed, and so we predicted another 10 years, and it's still being predicted. Uh, there's one guy out there who's uh, very well known and has a clinical practice where he does this, but he's, uh, he's really a witch doctor. Uh, there's really no evidence to support this. We have not been, we've learned a lot about the brain and we've learned a lot about these diseases, but to date, we still are not able to look at a brain and tell you what disease, what brain disease they have in terms of uh, psychiatric illnesses or addict, addictive illnesses. Um, we had hoped to be there. You know, we just haven't gotten there yet uh, because, you know, the brain's just, probably just real more, uh, way more complex than we had anticipated. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I remember um, during the Obama administration, funding was put in place to do brain mapping and launch that, that, that multi, multi, multi-million dollar study. And, and I know one of the adjuncts is the Human Connectome Project. And I seem to recall reading an article about a year or two ago, um, wherein the Human Connectome Project reported that they had nearly doubled the known number of discrete brain structures that, that had particular function. I, I thought that was fascinating that we, we live with this, you know, gray matter in our heads and we're still learning about our own bodies. Um, so. um, I'm not aware of that, but, but I think one of the most exciting things that have come out in the last several years now, uh, and, and particularly with respect to psychedelics in terms of what we learned, is the brain networks. Yeah. So instead of looking at these isolated areas in the brain, uh, you know, the hippocampus or the, the prefrontal cortex or, you know, or the striatum where there's uh, the reward, the ventral striatum, uh, we found that there's these networks. So there's various parts of the brain that have very strong connections to each other. So since we can look second to second, we can see that when one part of the brain is activated, another part is activated at exactly the same time. So they work, they work together going up and down. Yeah. And so we uh, assume that they're talking to each other. And then if we look at the white matter, the, the, uh, the neurons 
the, the uh, neurons that connect them, you know, we can see that there's very strong white matter that allow the, those networks to talk to each other. Yeah. And so we have various networks that when we're paying attention to something, when we're daydreaming, uh, that's a different network that we'll probably get to later because uh, it's very relevant to psychedelics. Um, so uh, when you hear a sound, when you see something, there's all these various networks that are kind of working almost on their own is, is discrete brain structures, if you will. Hmm. Well, let me, let me go there since you just laid that out. Um, Cause to my mind, pardon the pun, what that sounds like is, is how the brain physically manifests consciousness. And if you're introducing a psychedelic or some other influencing substance that the brain is now operating or just con conversing internally with more than would be without that substance. And that is where the effect of an alteration of consciousness comes from. Is that fair description? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So to assuming, you know, um, have any studies revealed that the introduction of psychedelics not merely increases the conversation, but also permits portions of the brain that don't ordinarily talk in concert to talk in concert. Yes, and I suspect you have a clue about this because she phrased it so well. So there's, uh, I mentioned the part of the brain that's involved in daydreaming. It's called the default mode network. Yes. Uh, and, and it was found because uh, there's a, um, I'm blocking on his name, uh, but, but there's a couple of uh, guys who noticed it when you did a task. You know, we always looked at the areas that would increase in activation, whether we're looking at oxygen utilization um, or the amount of uh, blood going through it. We could see that it would increase, but there were some areas that decreased. And they started looking more closely at those areas, and they found that actually it's because it's not so much that they decrease, it's that they stop being active. So normally when you're not focused on something, your brain's wandering, it's hmm. daydreaming, uh, it's autobiographical, it's thinking about what you're gonna do, what you've done, uh, it's thinking about old memories. And that area, the default mode network is very discreet and we can see it all the time when someone isn't actively engaged in a task. Well, um, now the hallucinogens, almost all of them, with, with some exceptions, uh, they bind to 5-HT2 serotonin to A receptors. And, and so uh, some of the, I mean, this is just groundbreaking work. It's a few years old now. Uh, Carhart Harris and David Nutzlap in England. And I'm sorry, there, there's a group in uh, Switzerland as well some very nice work on that. And they showed that when you give a drug, a, a, a psychedelic like psilocybin to someone, the activation in the default mode network, you think that, well, with daydreaming, um, that with psychedelics, that's the part of the brain that would activate. But in fact, it decreased in activation. Hmm. So the default mode network was actually less active and then this is the, the really cool part was Carhartt Harris showed that what happened wasn't 
it wasn't so much that it deactivated. It's just that I mentioned there's this network that's talking to each other. And all of a sudden, this network was no longer talking to each other. It was talking to all these different parts of the brain. And then they looked at various other networks. And what was happening was there wasn't so much an increase or decrease in activity anywhere. It's just that all these different brain areas were talking to one another that don't usually talk to one another. So now from a survival perspective, that's not very useful because, you know, if a lion's about to jump out at you, your brain doesn't want to be wandering around. You want to be very alert and really focused on, on sounds, on vision, and these networks really need to be tightly engaged. But if you're contemplating the universe, um, or if you want to, all of a sudden these brain areas are almost randomly talking to one another. So you can see sounds. Uh, you can observe things that normally, from a survival perspective, you wouldn't want to be focused on. And the part that's so fascinating to me is that we become aware when we do psychedelics of the interconnectedness of things and the brain is becoming more interconnected. I mean, quite literally. Okay. Yeah. I, I absolutely, uh, share that observation for sure. I hadn't thought of it in, in those specific terms that, you know, the brain is paralleling the experience, but you're right. That, I would, from my focus, the experience is paralleling the brain. Fair, fair. <laughs> All right. So let me, let me uh, double back, uh, if I may, because um, we, we've had a, a, a nice conversation thus far about uh, the, the impact of psychedelics on the brain. But again, you come from a, a background of addiction uh, psychiatry where you're not really dealing so much with psychedelic abuse, correct? Am I assuming rightly that most people suffering addiction aren't coming in with a psychedelics addiction? Uh, the pop, yes, uh, the population, particularly I worked with, uh, I don't know that it would have been that much different anywhere else, but at the VA, uh, I can't remember anyone who came in with any, even secondary uh, or tertiary uh, addiction issues with psychedelics. I mean, part of it was the population, but, but part of it is, uh, as we know, it's, it's not a particularly abused uh, or misused, I like the word misused better, uh, drug. Yeah, and, and that's important to get out there, too, because part of my audience happens to be uh, psychiatric professionals, mental health professionals, but part of my audience as well are, are younger people trying to get through college and into careers. So. Um, for those who aren't in the mental health field specifically, why don't, why don't we add a definition, if we can, to addiction? Because I, I think most people popularly misunderstand what that word means. So can you offer them the professional perspective on what is addiction? So addiction is defined uh, as probably most people know about DSM, uh, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that psychiatry has put together for many decades. 
uh, and it has specific criteria for each psychiatric and addictive illness. Uh, and for addiction, they changed it a little bit uh, a few years back from DSM-4 to DSM-5. And it's, it's worth discussing because it's certainly relevant to social justice. Um, but there's 11 criteria. And let me start by saying nowhere in these criteria does it say how much you need to use that it's an amount that the amount you take is a criteria, uh, nor is a frequency. It's all about the consequences of use. And I, I think of it as that the four C's uh, lost control. So do you take more of, the, more of the substance? And I say substance because it can include nicotine, it includes uh, alcohol, certainly. Do you take more of the substance than planned? Um, have you tried to stop and been unable to? Uh, do you have consequences? Um, continued use despite adverse consequences. You can pick either continued or consequences for your C. Uh, so have you had uh, psychological, personal, family, uh, work, school uh, uh, problems due to your substance use? Um, do you have compulsive use? Uh, you spend a lot of time trying to get the drug, getting over the effects of the substance. Um, have you given up other things in your life for the substance? And the fourth one, uh, the new one, is craving. When you, when you can't get the drug or try to stop, do you crave? So these are, are very specific, uh, and, and they work across all substances, and they also work pretty well for most behaviors that are addictive. And I have heard it said that addiction isn't necessarily limited only to drugs. You can be addicted to literally anything if, if it pushes your particular button. Is, is that accurate? Um, I, I'm trying to think anything. Um, it's, it's, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot for, you know, somebody's a workaholic if they spend a lot of time at work, but question is how much of a problem is it and and most of these are very poorly defined uh tanning the one i mentioned yeah. um i didn't believe it i i had a um a young um resident approach me and from dermatology who wanted to do studies imaging studies on this and i kind of um dismissed it but she talked me into it she was very convincing hmm. and and I was just surprised to find out that there's people, you can only go by law to a tanning salon once a day. Hmm. Well, they would have two or three memberships. Hmm. Um, this is how they spent their life. And I don't know if you remember the tanning mom. Yeah, uh, that was the first thing that popped into my head when you mentioned it. Yeah, because you looked at her. She clearly had uh, Caucasian features. And yet her skin was a dark brown. Oh, and she, just she looked like beef jerky. You just looked at her and knew there's something wrong with this woman. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there are people who would focus their lives. They would spend hundreds of dollars a month on that they really didn't have uh, on, on uh, tanning. And they would have uh, cancer skin cancer, and they would continue tanning. So it was a very interesting population. And I, 
I, I couldn't get away from the fact that, you know, I would say they're addicted. So over your, your career, you have um, worked at a number of different institutions and in a number of different roles. Which of those did you enjoy the most and why? Um, my primary interest has always been uh, research and looking at the brain. I was, um, I was drawn to medicine well, as you as I was brought up Jewish, um, and so quite literally, my my career choices, as far as I knew, was to go into law or medicine, and I, I really hadn't thought of anything else. Um, you know, I I I, uh, I was at a drug policy conference, and I was fortunate to have lunch with a um, Hispanic guy who had just given. One, one of the keynote speeches and he had uh, he had been pardoned. He had done some stupid stuff when he was a kid an adolescent and landed up in jail with a long sentence for, I don't know, I think he stole a car or something. And he got pardoned by Obama, very eloquent uh, guy. And I had lunch with him and he said, you know, when I grew up, I, the only options I saw on TV, on the movies, in my neighborhood, in my family, was to join a gang. And I thought about it, and I thought, God, talk about privilege. I mean, I, looking at young Jewish men at that time, either in my family or in my neighborhood or on TV or the movies, my option was to be a physician or be a lawyer. Uh, so in college I was pre-med, but actually I got into modern art and became just tremendously engaged with it, um, and really struggled with which direction to go in. Um, and, and I can't say it was this moment, but I, uh, doing psychedelics in college, not a lot, but enough to, I remember the first one is most people do um, when I knew and I was so intrigued with how is a medication, how is a plant, how is a drug making me feel this way? And in my tendency to, you know, intellectualize stuff, I became really intrigued with learning, uh, being able to study the brain. Okay. So, and so that's how I landed in this direction. And that's what I always wanted to do. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember um, doing a little research on you ahead of the show that you had mentioned in an interview that you had had an early psychedelic experience that was so profound, it, it shot you off in a particular direction. Um, and you're not the first person to say that. Uh, I, I've spoken to tons of professionals who are, who are like, yeah, I had a singular experience and it was life altering in a very good way. I've never met somebody who said it was life altering in a bad way. Um, either people have walked away going, meh, what's the big deal? Or wow, it's like somebody just lifted a sheet off of my head for the first time. Um, and it sounds like you had one of those profound moments as well. Yeah. And, and I, I, I guess it's possible that some of us, uh, well, I shouldn't say us because I have not um, been studying psychedelics in my career, but those who are, 
Uh, I think some are in academia and, and like to, you know, do not want to go there, but it's hard for me to believe that they haven't, they did not get going in this direction because of their experience with psychedelics. Sure, sure. And, and that raises a good question. Where, where do you fall on, on the issue of should a uh, mental health professional who's going to be using psychedelics in their practice, should they have had the experience themselves? Um, you know, it's, it's like saying should, because I've heard this, well, if you, have, if you don't have an addiction, you shouldn't be treating people with addictions. Well, we would never say that to a psychiatrist treating schizophrenia or an oncologist treating cancer. Now, an oncologist who's treating cancer and who has had a serious cancer themselves, I think has would have some unique insights that someone else wouldn't. But I, I would not. So I, I think taking a psychedelic and experiencing it would be awfully could be very useful. But I wouldn't want to say that, well, unless you've actually experienced um, what your patient has experienced, you can't, uh, you, you wouldn't be qualified to work with that person. Because otherwise, we'd be very, very, you know, can I treat a gay person? Uh, can I treat a person of color? Sure. And there's things I wouldn't understand. But certainly, my job as a psychiatrist is to be able to empathize with people who I do not have shared experiences with. Otherwise I would be left with uh, short juice uh, from the North. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I appreciate that answer. I see so often uh, in some of the online forums that I visit that that is a, a hotly argued question uh, in the community. And it seems to come more from the young up-and-comers who, who just haven't really established themselves yet in careers. Um, but it's coming. It's coming, folks, so be patient. Uh, I think that there's going to be a whole panoply of, of psychedelics available in at least the psychiatric context, if not beyond that. Um, I, I know some, um, you know, like uh, uh, MAP studies, uh, Rick Doblin's um, group, um, they, they have permission to give psychedelics to their uh, to their therapists, I now I don't know if it's required for their therapists to undergo that experience if they have not had it. I know there's some some therapists I've heard podcasts by um, with his or other groups that have that came to it completely naive, and yet were very interested in this area enough to get a job with him um, with one of these groups. And they were able to do their first trip uh, as part of their training, which yeah. I thought was very cool. Yeah, I, I, I've seen uh, MAPS discuss that on, on their website as well. And, and I think it's a fine idea. I, I think making the experience available to as many people as possible so that they can judge it for themselves and, and, and be able to obtain some vocabulary to share. Because one of the things... Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. 
Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.